Stanford University. The stirring notes of the Decembrists Infanta fade into the background. This is Hank Greeley from the Stanford Center for Law and Biosciences, welcoming you to issue four of our regular podcast. Today we're going to talk about DNA, we're going to talk about elections, we're going to talk about unconventional families, although not necessarily in a way inspired by the elections, and we'll tell you what's coming up at the Center for Law and the Biosciences. Let's start with DNA. DNA, the Fourth Amendment and arrests. In recent years, many states and the federal government have started requiring people who are arrested for certain crimes, typically felonies, to, quote, donate, close quote, DNA samples to be profiled and then be put into the DNA profile database. Um, I've always liked the use of the word donate in this context. Usually donate means I give something freely. It's sort of like women donating their eggs for $50,000 seems like an odd use of the term. But in any event, the question isn't whether it's donation or not. The legal question is whether it is an illegal search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. In every case brought about mandatory DNA collection from people who have been convicted, the courts ultimately ruled that that was constitutional. The cases involving people who have been arrested but not convicted are still percolating through the system. One recently was heard en banc in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, Haskell versus Harris, challenging the California statute. The panel ruled two to one in favor of constitutionality. The entire en banc Ninth Circuit heard the argument this past summer, and we're expecting the decision soon. But that decision may turn out to be overtaken by events, or at least overtaken by the Supreme Court of the United States. On Friday, November 9th, the U.S. Supreme Court granted the state of Maryland's petition for certiorari in the case of Maryland versus King. I am joined here today by our two fellows, Jake Shirko and Matt Lampkin. Jake, tell us about the facts of Maryland v. King. Sure. So in that case, the criminal defendant or the petitioner, depending upon whether you're looking at it at the trial or the appellate level, was arrested for felony assault and gave a DNA sample. The DNA sample was then profiled. It was inputted into CODIS, which is the National DNA Database, and then it was matched to DNA recovered at another crime scene. Uh, That crime was rape. The the criminal defendant, King, was then charged with the rape crime uh, for which he was, I believe, eventually convicted. He tried to suppress the introduction of the DNA profile at trial under the belief that it was an unconstitutional search and seizure. That wound its way to the highest court in Maryland, which is the Maryland Court of Appeals, who ruled that he possessed a reasonable expectation of privacy in his DNA, and therefore it was an unconstitutional seizure. So it's that case that's going to the Supreme Court now. We had noted this case back in the summer for something sort of unusual. The state had petitioned the Supreme Court, or actually their circuit justice, in this case Chief Justice Roberts, to stay the Court of Appeals in Maryland's decision. They wanted to be able to continue to force arrestees to give DNA samples and to be able to use them while the case was pending. Chief Justice Roberts 
somewhat to my surprise, frankly, granted the stay, finding that the state would be irreparably injured and that there was a good chance both that the Supreme Court would take the case and that the state would win on the merits. This made it seem more likely that the court ultimately would grant cert, since the Chief Justice said they would, and he turned out to be right. From what you described, the DNA sample that was taken from him was then used against him not in the case for which he was arrested, but in an entirely separate case. Is that right? That's correct. Um, That's also the same issue that recently was taken up by an Ohio Supreme Court case. Um, The facts are pretty similar to those. The court there ruled that it was not an unconstitutional search and seizure because what was used against him was a DNA profile that was entered into CODIS. That profile was the work product of the state, and under that characterization, it was peculiar to say that the defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Again, it seems strange to say that the defendant would have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the work product of the state crime lab. Well, we should back up and explain this to our listeners a little bit. When the state takes a DNA sample, they're taking a sample of DNA. It used to be from blood. Now often it's just from a, a swabbing of the inside of the cheek. And that DNA sample will contain many, many copies of your entire genome, all 6.8 billion base pairs. But the state doesn't, at least normally, do anything with most of that. They look at it in 13, actually 14, specific regions. These are the so-called CODIS markers, or at least 13 of them are, where people have normal and apparently meaningless variations. The 14th actually is a gene called amelogenin, which will tell them whether or not you're male or female. It's, for the most part, the 13 markers that become your CODIS profile. For each of those locations, you've got two copies of the gene, one you got from your mom, one you got from your dad. And what's being looked at is the number of repeats. Usually these are four DNA letters, so it might be a CCAT, and it will repeat somewhere between two times to 20 times, and those number of repeats vary from person to person. So your CODIS profile will actually be 13 pairs of numbers. For marker 1, you might be 712. For marker 2, you might be 28. For marker 3, you might be 44, and so on. That's the CODIS profile that you're talking about, right, Jake? Yeah, that's right. And I think while we're talking about this, it's important to distinguish between two things. The first are DNA sequences, that is, the actual letters ACTG, for example, And those DNA sequences are generally the things that scientists can look at and determine whether, for example, you're black or white, whether you are male or female, whether you have a predisposition to certain genetic diseases, and so on. Many people, I believe, would assume that they have some expectation of privacy in the sequences. The profile, however, is simply a measurement, like you were describing before, of the number of repeats, that is, when it's measured on what's called a gel, simply shows the length of those repeats. So these repeats, will they tell you anything about your likely future health and so on? No, there's no real significant information to the repeats besides their lengths. No one can tell, for example, whether or not you have a predisposition to obtaining diabetes, whether or not you are black, whether or not you're white, so on and so forth. So these CODIS markers are really recording the number of these different repeats. Now, as far as scientists can tell, these repeats have no physical meaning. They don't increase or decrease your disease risk. They don't do anything. 
And this leads people to try to distinguish them from the sort of genomic information that says something about people they might be worried about, their health risks, etc. Now, one can't quite say that these repeats do nothing. Well, let me back that up. We're never entirely sure. It's very hard to prove a negative that the repeats do nothing. There's no reason to think they do anything. They might. I think the odds are quite low. A little more subtly, they can be associated with things that do something. If they come very, very close on a chromosome to a gene that does something, a particular number of repeats, say having seven repeats, can, particularly in some families, be associated with one form or the other of the gene that does something. We don't know of any of that with respect to the CODIS repeats. It may well be true. We do know that there's a little bit of correlation between CODIS repeat lengths and ethnicity, that African Americans are likely to have some repeat lengths more frequently than European Americans, who are likely to have some more frequently than Native Americans, and so on. We can't say much about it. We can look at a CODIS profile and say, well, you know, instead of 13%, which is the population share, this profile looks like there's only a 6% chance the person is African American, or is an 18% chance. We can't say much, can say a little. How many of those associations there will turn out to be, and how important they are, is unknown. The likely answer is not very many and not very important, but no one can say with certainty that that's true. And there is one other important thing they can tell you about. Who's your daddy? Or more broadly, who are your family members? Because you share those repeats with your family members. Half of each of that pair came from your father. Half of each of that pair came from your mother. And that can be used to do family DNA testing in ways that raise a whole other set of issues. Issues that, however, are not immediately on the table in Maryland versus King. So we've got the Ninth Circuit in Haskell hearing this case on Bonk. That decision may or may not come down before the U.S. Supreme Court decision comes down. We have the Ohio Supreme Court with a decision that is that will soon be final in Ohio and might be appealed to the Supreme Court. And we've got the U.S. Supreme Court with Maryland v. King. So, Jake, any guess on when the Supreme Court will decide the Maryland case? It'll probably hear it in late February, early March, so it'll probably issue a decision, I would say, perhaps in June? Well, it's not going to be later than June unless they break their normal rules. I'm guessing this one goes to the last week of June, because I think there's likely to be a pretty significantly split court. We'll see. I think that's true, and there's almost certainly to be a lot of amicus briefs as well. This case is just about mandatory collection of DNA, yet it's part of a broader theme the whole question of how the Fourth Amendment applies to new technologies. We saw it last year in the Jones case involving GPS and cars. We saw it a decade ago with Kylo involving the infrared sensors outside the house. There was a case recently about drug-sniffing dogs and whether they could come to the front door or not. The court is having trouble figuring out how to apply the Fourth Amendment to new technologies. This is one of them. Tune back in in late June when we've got an answer to what the court does in Maryland v. King. Back to the world of biomedicine. One recent study that made sensational headlines was the possibility of making children with three parents. The headline was honest kind of, but here's what's really going on. Most of our DNA is contained in the 
46 chromosomes that are in the nuclei of our cells. That's the famous human genome, the 6.8 billion base pairs. It's actually two genomes, one from your mom, one from your dad, each of about 3.4 billion base pairs. But in addition, we have this strange alien DNA in our mitochondria. You may remember from high school biology, mitochondria are the, quote, energy powerhouses of the cell, close quote. Mitochondria have their own DNA. That DNA seems likely to have descended from some ancient bacterium that merged with some other bacterium billions of years ago to make the first eukaryotic cell, the ancestor of us, and chimps, and mice, and lizards, and carrots, every other living thing you can see with your eye. The mitochondrial DNA is important. It's small. It's about 170,000 base pairs long compared to 6.8 billion base pairs. There's only one copy of it. It doesn't come in two pairs, and you only get it from your mom. It makes maybe genes for around 10 proteins and another 15 or so important little RNAs, which means since it does something important, if it's messed up, bad things can happen. Serious mitochondrial diseases are relatively rare, happily, but they do exist. So here was the idea. Take an egg, take the nucleus out of that egg, put in the nucleus from somebody else's egg, fertilize that new hybrid egg with somebody's sperm, and you could have a child whose half of whose nuclear DNA comes from the sperm donor father, half of whose nuclear DNA comes from the nucleus donor mother, and 0.0001% of whose DNA is the mitochondrial DNA that came from the other mother. It's an idea to avoid mitochondrial diseases. It also, though, is gene transfer and moving and creating a child that arguably has three parents. Now, in fact, this has been done. About a decade ago, in vitro fertilization clinics tried this in two different ways. They moved nuclei around. They also would sometimes leave the nucleus and just move cytoplasm around, put new cytoplasm from a woman with healthy mitochondria into the egg the mitochondria are in the cytoplasm. Over 30 babies were actually born using the second technique, the so-called ooplasm transfer. Until the Food and Drug Administration said, whoa, hold on, you're doing medicine here that requires approval. This gene transfer, cytoplasm transfer, nucleus transfer, that's a drug or a biologic under the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act or the Public Health Service Act. You need our approval. The actual human experiments went on hold the news this past fall was about experiments with monkey eggs and some experiments with human eggs, not leading to the birth of a child, not intended to lead to the birth of a child, but making it more clear that there's a scientific basis for something that actually had been done a decade ago. Personally, I can't say I find this mitochondrial gene transfer all that troubling. And the idea that you have a child with three parents doesn't bother me all that much since my genes come from four people, my four grandparents, or eight people, my eight great-grandparents, or 16 people, etc. I, I find the whole notion of calling someone who donates their mitochondrial DNA to be a parent rather peculiar, I think. Well, they are donating some genetic material that will get passed down from generation to generation, although note, only if the child, although note, only if the child is a woman. Men don't pass their mitochondrial down to their kids. 
Right. And then there's also the whole microbiome to consider at the same time, all of the gut, flora, and fauna that we have that has their own DNA that's necessary for the proper functioning of our cells. Um, you know, it would be peculiar to call your lawn your, your parent. Your lawn? Your, your lawn, all the, you know, by all the bacteria that exists on your front lawn. Okay, so the idea that uh, your third parent, my third parent was a fungus, or my third parent was a bacterium, does seem a little odd, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I just think it's a poor use of parent. I think it's just attention-grabbing headline writing. But it would be the first germline gene therapy undertaken, as far as we know. Again, assuming that the child is female. Is that an important line that's being crossed? The Nuffield Council in Britain, Britain's leading bioethics think tank, this summer came out with a report finding this kind of mitochondrial therapy ethically unchallenging. I agree with them, but I suspect there are a lot of people around who find it much more unsettling than I do. I mean, I think like you, I'm not necessarily bothered by it. Um, I think the thing that I'm bothered by the most is the terminology that is parent. Uh, well, the hypome trumps the genome every day. <laughs> While the, quote, three-parent babies, close quote, are one approach to gene therapy, we actually have recently seen a breakthrough in the more commonly understood form of gene therapy, using a viral vector to move a good copy of a gene into a patient who doesn't have one. The European Medical Authority has now approved, for the first time, gene therapy for clinical use. The FDA hasn't done that yet. This is the first approval of gene therapy by any Western drug regulatory agency. About nine years ago, the Chinese approved a gene therapy for certain oral cancers involving P53 substitution, but I don't think anybody outside China thinks it works. I'm not sure anybody inside China still thinks it works. This one seems to work. That's the good news. The bad news is it's for a lipoprotein lipase deficiency that only affects about one person in somewhere between one million and two million. It can cause life-threatening pancreatitis, and gene therapy has been proven to the satisfaction, at least of the European regulators, to be safe and effective for treatment of this disorder. It's been a long road for gene therapy. First tests were over 30 years ago. Lots of disappointments along the way. Maybe they're finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and they can only hope it's not the light at the end of Mr. Toad's wild ride. So, Matt, I understand recently there was an election in the United States. Any implications for law in the biosciences? Uh, there were. The biggest implications for law in the biosciences, I think, are the same as the biggest headline nationwide, which is that Obama won, uh, which means that Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, will remain in place. Had the Republicans won both the presidency and taken a majority in the Senate, they had pledged to repeal Obamacare as sort of their first order of business. That's not going to happen now. That leaves several states in a difficult position because some, uh, with Republican governors, had fought implementation of state-level pieces of the Affordable Care Act, most notably the creation of state-level health insurance exchanges. And now several states are scrambling to implement those exchanges before the federal government steps in and does it for them. However, several states also had state-level referenda that bar the states from implementing 
various aspects of Obamacare. For example, in Missouri, Missouri voters passed a referendum that bars the government from taking steps to implement an exchange in that state without prior legislative approval, which the governor was not able to get prior to the deadline for notifying the federal government, which means the federal government is going to step in and create the exchange in Missouri instead of the state. So what's the problem with the feds just creating the exchanges themselves? Well, there isn't really a problem, except it puts some governors in a difficult situation. On the one hand, they could either choose to implement the exchange in their state, which may be deeply unpopular with their state's voters, and especially uh, in their own party. On the other hand, if they pass on the opportunity, then they don't get to guide how the exchanges are set up in their own states. They lose control over the creation of those exchanges. So it'll be interesting to watch how those particularly deeply Republican states go about dealing with this. That's right. So, Matt, so some of the states are not um, encouraging their governors to implement this. Did any states go even farther? A couple states did, although the referendums were largely symbolic. So, for example, in Florida, Amendment 1 would have barred essentially the individual mandate that was at the heart of Obamacare, requiring individuals to buy insurance. However, had it passed, which in Florida it did not, uh, it would have had no effect because the federal law would have controlled. Did any of the other states uh, try to ban um, federal action? Wyoming also had a ballot measure, which voters approved, that prohibited both the federal government and the state from requiring any individual mandate. I think that's pretty clearly unconstitutional. So as Matt said, it was largely symbolic. So the word of the Supremacy Clause has not yet reached the Inland Empire of Wyoming. It's actually kind of interesting. The Supreme Court really did sort of go out of its way, many of us thought, to defer to states with respect to the Medicaid option under the spending clause in the in the litigation this past year. It would be interesting if these propositions then bring up yet another issue of state-federal relations where really hard to see any room for the Supreme Court to favor a state position like Wyoming's. Right. It's kind of like a popular constitutionalism gone completely awry. The things I really like about Wyoming... I think their popular understanding of the federal constitution is probably not one of them. It's from the ball. Speaking of federal-state conflicts, there were some marijuana referenda passed that might pose some of these, right? The uh, incredible disjuncture between federal marijuana policy and state marijuana policy continues and actually has accelerated with the most recent voting. So two states, Colorado and Washington, approve referenda legalizing marijuana in those states, uh, not just for medical purposes, but for any purpose by adults. Well, I, I didn't see that coming. I mean, the medical marijuana stuff has been pricking along for quite a while, but had there been earlier referenda on total legalization of marijuana? If I'm not mistaken, there was one in Colorado a number of years ago, but it was overwhelmingly rejected. And there was one in California, I believe, two years ago that was defeated, not narrowly, but also not by a huge margin. For total legalization, not just medical marijuana. That's right. And so the disconnect between the federal policy and state policy just continues to, to grow wider. 
Uh, under federal law, marijuana is a Schedule One controlled substance, so the feds say that marijuana has no accepted medical use, uh, while 16 states and the District of Columbia uh, say there is and permit patients to get marijuana by prescription. The feds treat marijuana like an addictive narcotic, while two states now permit selling marijuana like tobacco and actually are going to fill their state coffers with taxes from sale of the drug. Oh, really? Did the referenda include a tax uh, on marijuana? At least Colorado's did, and they expect to take in about a half billion dollars in uh, marijuana sales taxes. Rocky Mountain High. That's right. But because of this federal and state conflict, in the words of Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, don't break out the Cheetos and Goldfish just yet. <laughs> That's right, because while the states allow marijuana cultivation under federal law, people who cultivate marijuana can be prosecuted more harshly than gun runners and rapists. There's a Montana grower who is currently facing 80 years in prison for growing marijuana that he was cultivating legally under state law. Now, I assume we think under the Supremacy Clause, the federal government can go ahead and arrest, prosecute, convict, and imprison folks even for doing something that's legal under state law. So I'm assuming this isn't so much a constitutional issue, but it does raise kind of a difficult, I would think, prudential, practical, and political issue for the Obama administration. What should they do in Washington and Colorado? I think it's tough to say. Using the feds to conduct routine law enforcement has not been historically successful in the United States, so I don't know where they're going to go from here. When Obama took office, Eric Holder, a couple years ago, said to, to California's medical marijuana growing, prosecuting marijuana growers was not a law enforcement priority for the administration. However, just a couple years later, there was sort of an about-face by the Justice Department, and they have, in fact, been coming after marijuana growers in the state of California. My own, I guess, political preference would be, I mean, I think the federal government can avoid being in a quandary by simply directing its uh, law enforcement resources toward other crimes. Of course, the Obama administration got some flack from Republicans when it reprioritized immigration law to say that certain illegal immigrants could stay in the country just because we weren't going to bother to go after them. I would think the same kind of arguments could be made with respect to de-emphasizing marijuana prosecutions. It's true. I personally would rather see a harmonization uh, of the state and federal laws, and particularly to have the federal government catch up with the states. Nancy Pelosi this past year indicated that uh, medical marijuana reform would be a high priority of the next Congress, which I find extremely dubious uh, given the challenges facing the nation. But it, it would be nice to see activity on the federal side to meet the states. And then one more level of law here. Uh, I'm not sure what the details are, but I think there may even be some international treaty issues with respect to legalization of marijuana, the federal government's position may be somewhat constrained by international obligations. Jake, what happened to uh, Prop 37, which you and I talked about in our last podcast? I thought it was going to pass, but apparently it was rejected by the voters. Prop 37, if you remember, required the labeling of genetically modified foods. 
it was unclear exactly what that term meant with respect to the statute, and uh, I think, frankly, whether it was possible to do what the statute required given some uncertainty as to the food supply. So that went down. Nonetheless, people who are concerned about eating food that's made from genetically modified things can simply look for the FDA-certified organic label. It's a black and white circle. It looks kind of like a yin-yang that's on some foods that you may find, and that generally prohibits uh, using genetically modified food somewhere in the food supply. Although we should note again that foods that have been genetically modified through recombinant DNA technology... Everything we eat has been genetically modified by the actions of our herding, farming, and hunting ancestors. That's true, and I think that was one of the concerns with voters and some members of the public, that there really wasn't a solid basis in science for this labeling requirement. Despite being outspent by about 10 to 1, the proponents of Proposition 37 didn't lose by much. It was 53-47 last I looked. They carried the coastal counties, for the most part in California, lost heavily inland, this may, be, may not be the last time we see this. Right. I actually would be surprised if it was. I think it'll come up on the ballot again at some point. It may even be a law that's passed by the state legislature. And the California state legislature now has Democratic supermajorities in both the Senate and the Assembly. And then, of course, you know, one big thing that came out of the election is we don't have to talk about federal funding for stem cell research uh, the way we might have had Governor Romney been elected president. The top of the ticket uh, makes a difference in terms of what issues will be occupying the interests of people in law and the biosciences for the next four years. And so we come to the end of Issue 4 of the Center for Law and Biosciences podcast. Thanks for joining us. I want to remind you that there are lots of other ways you can join us. Send an email to clb at law.stanford.edu to get on our mailing list. You'll get our monthly newsletter. You'll also get notices of our events, almost all of which are open to the public. Check out our blog, where we post regularly on interesting new issues in law and biosciences, and recently have started a series about law and bioscience fiction that some of you might find interesting. Follow us on Twitter, and if you can't make our events in person, look for recorded versions of most of our events on our webpage. One event I want to particularly note on Thursday, November 29th, we're sponsoring through our sister organization, the Stanford Interdisciplinary Group on Neuroscience and Society, a discussion on sports, brain trauma, and neuroscience. That'll be at 5 o'clock in room 290 here at Stanford Law School. Look for further information as it becomes available. We hope to see you on the 29th, and we hope you tune in from time to time to our blog, our tweets, and our podcast. This is Hank Greeley for the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University. Talk to you next time. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.